everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Happy to welcome you all to um, this Grand Rounds, which is sponsored by the Department of Medicine and the Section of General Internal Medicine. Uh, for those of you who are watching remotely and would like to receive CME credit, you can use the code KJ6R. So that should get you your credit, whether you're here in the room or watching remotely. Um, and with that, I would like to um, welcome James Stahl, who's an Associate Professor of Medicine and the Section Chief of General Internal Medicine, to tell us about today's speaker. Thank you, Kelly. Um, I have to say it's with great pleasure that I'm actually introducing our speaker today. Uh, I've known Marilyn for many years, uh, and I consider her a good friend. Um, so uh, just a little background on Marilyn. Marilyn, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Shapiro. Um, uh, is a graduate of Oberlin College and the uh, University of Michigan and uh, got her public, school of public health uh, degree there. And she trained in uh, internal medicine at Emory and did her GIM fellowship at Duke. She's currently professor of medicine at University of Pennsylvania and uh, in the Division of General Medicine and for the Center for Health Equity Research and Promotion at, in Philadelphia, PA. Um, she is, uh, she is funded by uh, many, many different sources, including the Department of Defense, uh, the NCI and VA, and works in the areas of health numeracy, risk communication, and medical decision making. Uh, she's also a former uh, past president of Society of Medical Decision Making, which is where we first met, um, a member of the Council for Society of General Internal Medicine, and a, uh, a graduate of the education, uh, Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine program. And I cannot say how, how pleased I am actually to have you come and give us a talk. And so, Marilyn, I'll just pass Thank it off to you. Well, I want to really thank James for inviting me and the Department of Medicine and the Division of General Medicine. It, it's really an honor for me to be here at Dartmouth. And for someone uh, with an interest in a career in decision science, you know, there is no place that's better known than Dartmouth. And I've worked with many of your colleagues over the years here, and it, it's a really great honor. So thank you for, uh, for having me. Um, what I want to talk today about is shared decision-making in the practice of medicine and how we can help patients understand evidence, options, and trade-offs. And a lot of my work has been in this area. And I didn't advertise it, but I'm really using um, the, the um, clinical scenario of lung cancer screening and the work that we've, I've been doing in the VA in particular, you know, as an example to talk about these issues today. So... Uh, in terms of disclosures, I just wanted to mention some of the grant funding I've had that supported this body of work. And most of the work I'm going to talk about and discuss today is from this VA um, HSRND merit grant um, in the area of lung cancer screening. So I wanted to start the discussion with a case history. Uh, Ms. G is a 58-year-old woman who presents for a primary care visit. Her past medical history includes post-traumatic stress syndrome, obesity, diabetes, and she's a long-term heavy smoker. She's up to date on all her screening in breast, cervical, and colorectal cancer, um, but a newly created clinician view alert indicates to her physician that she's eligible now for lung cancer screening. The provider's uncertain that this is a priority for her care and concerned this could increase her anxiety. She'd rather focus on smoking cessation. And Mrs. G was not even aware that there was such a screening test. The provider knows that this is a level B recommendation from UPSTF, um, but she's uncertain about how to proceed. 
Now, this is, I think, a typical, at least in our VA, a typical type of scenario. Um, so I wanted to, um, in thinking about lung cancer screening, I mean, overall, we want to, where we're going is how can shared decision-making and how can we harness help for the patient and the provider to maneuver this type of scenario. But I wanted to point out some very unique aspects of lung cancer screening in terms of a paradigm for cancer control. It's the first recommended screening test where eligibility is based on a behavior, which is smoking, and not really based on just age or gender. It has a wide spectrum of harms associated with the known benefits, benefits being mortality reduction, lung cancer specific and overall, but a wide array of potential harms, false positive tests, significant incidental findings, overdiagnosis, radiation exposure, and uh, anxiety costs and, times of en and time of entering a pathway requiring much follow-up. That makes it somewhat unique. Um, in addition, it was a test that was developed in the, and approved in the era of the Affordable Care Act. And um, coverage in this act, as you know, coverage is mandated for preventive services that receive, <coughs> receive an A or B level grade of evidence. Um, and therefore, uh, reimbursement by Medicare is, Medicare will reimburse, but they have actually required for that reimbursement a shared decision-making discussion. So this legislative component uh, is somewhat new for us as providers. So the grant that I'm doing, I want to just frame these aims because it shows where this talk is going a bit and where the data has come from. We first wanted to understand, in the context of veterans, an older, somewhat sicker, somewhat unserved population, how do they and their providers feel about lung cancer screening? And do they perceive a value to a lung cancer screening decision support tool? Based on that, we are working to develop the tool based on that input, and we wanted to develop it to make an engaging experience that's provider and patient focused and achieves the goals of shared decision making. And then we want to test this tool in the VA environment, looking at both decision process outcomes and health outcomes to see, you know, can we really get to where we want to go um, in terms of uh, this decision about lung cancer screening. So shared decision making, and I feel I don't really have to tell this audience what shared decision making is um, from Dartmouth, but it is, you know, a framework for decision making that's most pertinent, although not solely, to decisions of equipoise or near equipoise, where if you think about those benefits and harms, and we're going to go over them in a bit more detail of lung cancer screening, one could say that for many people, they might reach equipoise. Um, and in that case, it may be what's called a preference-sensitive decision, where you need to consider not only the evidence, but patient values. And the components of a shared decision-making process in my mind, and from much, much work and talk, some of which I've referenced here and some from Dartmouth authors, the point of it is to clarify to patients that there is a decision to be made, what are the options, to communicate to them the scientific evidence, to elucidate the patient values pertaining to risks and benefits, to in some magical way have the patient integrate the evidence and the values and, the, and so on, to have a discussion with the provider about this, and then in the end to make an informed, aligned, value-aligned decision. 
And why is that important? Well, in part, you're more likely to adhere to a decision where you've really thought about the outcomes and made it um, in a way that's thoughtful and deliberative. Um, and lung cancer screening really lends itself to this framework because of that list of risks and benefits in part that I, that I noted. Um, so I want to uh, talk a little bit about the evidence because a key aspect when we talk about shared decision-making is what evidence do we share? Um, we want to make sure it's credible. And even before thinking about how to communicate it with the patients and the providers, we really want to make sure we understand it, of course. So the main, uh, and it's complicated with lung cancer screening. Our main <laughs> evidence comes from, as you probably know, the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. This was a large study in 33 uh, centers across the United States of subjects 55 to 74 years of age with a heavy um, smoking history, current smokers or those who had quit um, in the past 15 years. Those were the eligibility uh, criteria for the trial. And the intervention, they compared lung cancer screening with low-dose CT scan, not to a control, but to chest X-ray. And the reason they chose that is because there was still ongoing analyses going of previous studies of X-ray versus um, usual care. And they were not, uh, it was thought to be the most, eth most ethical approach at the time. Um, there were three annual screens, and they were followed for about six and a half years. And their primary outcome was lung cancer death and with secondary outcomes uh, noted here as well. So these are the main uh, results of the trial, and which you may have seen uh, published in 2011 in the New England Journal. And what's interesting here is that the top graph um, shows the lung cancer incidence rates. And with the um, higher blue bar being the uh, low-dose CT and the lower bar being the chest X-ray in red, chest X-ray in red. And as in every cancer screening trial, you have a higher incidence of disease, usually in the screening test, compared to the control, as you see here. And in the lower bar, you see the primary outcome, the low graph, rather, of mortality rate. And you see that um, there is a lower mortality in the lung um, low-dose CT scan than the um, X-ray, which was the control group. And what's hidden in here, and I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes, is the risk, not really hidden, but you can observe it here, of overdiagnosis. Because you're di diagnosing a higher proportion of cancers when you use a screening test. And a certain proportion of those would not ever have become clinically evident. And so um, it's important to be aware of this graph. This mortality is considered a 20% relative risk reduction uh, in mortality approximately with lung cancer screening uh, when followed for six and a half years. These are other key outcomes in the trial, and they pertain to some of those other, if you re remember, the harms, what we think about as potential harms uh, of lung cancer screening. And the format here is a bit different. It was put together by the NCI. Again, I believe there were colleagues in your uh, department here that helped in this process of this format. Uh, but we have the mortality again, this time using a rate with a denominator of 100, and it's designed to make it more interpretable by patients. Um, 18 per thousand, a thousand rather, 18 per thousand deaths in the um, intervention group versus 21 in the control group. Uh, this difference of three deaths per thousand uh, patients having screening is the one we often communicate to patients and thought to be, in a way, the appropriate way, an absolute 
uh, risk reduction to communicate that benefit. Other outcomes noted here, the overall deaths as well as the uh, false positives um, that are experienced and um, as well as uh, the invasive procedures and major complications. Other harms that we're worried about uh, the population experiencing. Um, it's interesting that the Medicare requirements for um, shared decision-making specifically call out overdiagnosis and radiation exposure. So it's important, although um, the initial reports did not really convey the rates of overdiagnosis with lung cancer screening, and it is somewhat controversial there, uh, because they're estimates and projections, but they were, um, have been published in subsequent papers like this one um, in JAMA Internal Medicine in 2014. And uh, what this paper does is it takes the actual um, estimates, it takes the exposure from the National Lung Screening Trial. They count up the exposure over three, seven, ten years of radiation that um, participants were exposed to, and they use an estimation of um, the effect of ionizing radiation on persons that's taken from a a model based on medical studies, environmental studies, and studies from the atomic bomb explosions. They put that modeling together with these estimates from the trial. And, um, oh, I'm sorry, that's on the radiation exposure. This is for the radiation exposure. So they put that together. Um, yeah, for the radiation exposure, they put that together and they found that there's additional risk of um, cancer of five per 10,000 persons that experience um, 10 years of lung cancer screening. So five per 10,000 persons that have lung cancer screening for 10 years are going to have a radiation-induced cancer of some type. And this rate is four times higher in women than men because there's more sensitivity of women uh, to that ionizing radiation. Um, going back to the um, area of overdiagnosis, uh, I just want to say that Again, they um, calculate in one year how many uh, compare. The way overdiagnosis is usually determined is to compare the increased incidence in your intervention group compared to the control group, including all those that were diagnosed one year after the screening test. And uh, so this, this paper was published on overdiagnosis, again, suggesting the 18% overdiagnosis. Okay. So... Um, that's just by way of saying we have a good understanding of these harms and we could try to use this evidence in, um, when we talk to patients. Okay, so how about communicating evidence to the patients? How, you know, this is complicated evidence even for physicians to understand. And what do we know about communicating this type of numeric evidence to patients? Again, a key part of shared decision-making. So we know a lot. There's been a lot of studies in risk communication. Um, we know that we, sh we want to use um, established evidence-based um, practices, such as using absolute risk reduction. We want to use graphics with that risk information. We want to be aware of and minimize cognitive biases, such as framing biases and the use of varying denominators. Limit cognitive demand. So we have to be very parsimonious about what of this evidence we show the patients in shared decision-making. Uh, but we do want to get the key points that we think are most important. And we want to present the information in a way that's engaging 
that can engage the patient with the data. So some of the approaches here are like are such as using narratives and dialogue with the patient and really taking factors of what we um, taking advantage of what we know in human factor design and technology to make this experience with the data um, come to life and engage the patient so that they um, can really process it and use it. Now, what do we know about, um, do patients really want to see numbers? Do patients like numeric information, or do they just really want a recommendation? I've done a lot of qualitative work um, in this area, talking to patients in the community of across various um, educational levels and background. And it's very interesting that even those that have perhaps low levels of education, have not had experience directly in science or medicine, um, they still have a very intuitive sense of uh, the importance of research. They value research. When asked about what they think about scientific studies, these are some of the main components that come up in focus groups. They care about the sponsor of research. There's a lot of trust in the NIH. There's a lot of trust in universities. Um, they also have a sense of design elements. They care if, um, you know, they have a sense that a study is stronger if it has a control group, if there's a long follow-up period because they understand side effects take some time to emerge, if the study population is similar to them, and if they're larger studies. It's a very intuitive sense that the larger study, um, the more reliable it's going to be. So they do um, care to know certain aspects of the science on which the uh, data is based. At least that was one of our findings. And this focus group in, um, of community members in West Philly, um, where some of this work was done, these are just some you know, quotes that, that convey that um, sense. So this second quote, for example, talking about um, sample size. They say, yes, I would trust a larger study more because there are so many people and there are so many side effects. Everyone's, oh, um, yeah, everyone's not the same, and then you have some people whose systems are the same. So how, how that would affect those individuals would be very important to me. Um, so, you know, the second one is also about, you know, how similar the population is. Um, and the first quote talks about this, a length of follow-up, saying that a 10-year follow-up would be more credible. So um, this is all to say that I, I ha I'm of the belief that it is important to share the science in some way with um, patients in the shared decision-making process, and that that can really help um, engage them in the credibility of the data that we're showing them. Uh, so we talked a bit about, you know, what is the evidence for lung cancer screening. We have solid evidence. Um, the one aspect of sharing with patients and shared decision-making of sharing the evidence, and I'm going to show um, some examples about how we put this all together um, coming up. The other main aspect is really um, values and preferences. And as I um, spoke about, uh, you know, we want in shared decision-making to help patients to think about their values, and then we also want to be able to measure those values so that we as providers have a sense of what, where to focus our discussion with the patients. And um, one thing we have to be aware of, though, is that the way that patients think about benefits and harms 
could be very different from the way that we as medical professionals think about benefits and harms. And that carries over into a complexity in terms of the measurement of those as well in a systematic way. So there have been several publications that try to set up the taxonomy of benefits and harms uh, for lung cancer screening. And in general, this is a taxonomy that I think that most of us would feel is reasonable, and certainly that Medicare and that U.S. Uh, Preventive Services Task Force also views. The benefits are basically the reduced lung cancer mortality and overall mortality. And then here you have the harms that we've talked about, the false positives, the workup of those false positives, the need for follow-up tests, other findings that, you may, that may emerge, um, overdiagnosis that we've talked about at 18 percent, um, and radiation exposure as well. Um, so so um, in terms of that, uh, there are a lot of ways that we can measure um, stated preferences and um, also help patients to both clarify their values and also relay them to us. Um, these types of measurements um, can either be used, these methods can be used um, either by sort of referring to a total health state or to assess each of the attributes that we've been talking about. There's a visual analog scales, which are basically a scale that they can rate. There's some more um, utility assessments that involve making types of trade-offs between different health states and between a certain health state and time. You can use rating scales, which measure attitudes, but um, the rating scales um, themselves, when you measure those attitudes with respect to a certain decision, in that context, they really become a type of preference assessment. You can ask, uh, use willingness to pay methods or discrete choice experiments. Um, so we wanted to find out the uh, patient perspective um, on the, that taxonomy of values that I mentioned, and do they view them in the same way that we do? So to this extent, we conducted structured interviews in 32 veterans um, in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia and the West Haven VA, and to, we described these outcomes of lung cancer screening um, in a more simple way, but somehow as a, similar to what I've described here. And we asked the patients to do a card sorting activity to identify which of these were benefits and which were harms. And then we did um, cognitive interviewing to really probe uh, the reasoning that they were using for this. Um, and what we found here is that the patient valuation of the benefits and harms was very different than ours in a solid proportion of patients. So not in all, but I would say in about 30% of the patients. Um, although certainly they viewed the mortality uh, reductions as a benefit, patients viewed the outcomes of false positives, significant incidental findings, overdiagnosis, and invasive procedures, I would say about 30% of them as benefits. So why is this? Does that strike you as a little bit surprising? Um, and the reason we were probing this is because we realized when we were trying to measure the importance of these attributes in their decision that something was off psychometrically. <laughs> you know, when they would rate the appoint, um, when they would rate these, um, these attributes. Um, if they're not considering these harms, then a lot of the typical shared decision-making approaches 
that we try to assess the importance of these harms are going to be confusing. So we did some cognitive interviewing of these patients to really understand why. Cognitive debriefing, why did you consider this a benefit? And it basically comes down to patients have a strong desire to know more about their body, about their health, and any information is good. And this is not what all the patients felt, but perhaps, you know, a good proportion. So, for example, I'd rather know what's going on. Even if, it, I don't, even if it don't cause nothing, at least I'd know what's happening. Thanks for letting me know I have it. Thanks for letting me know it won't progress to cause any symptoms. This is overdiagnosis. That's why I'm thankful, because I know where I stand. I know what I got to do. Or with respect to having, needing an invasive procedure, such as a biopsy, um, good, positive. I'd be willing to do anything it takes to make sure that I don't have it, and if I do have it, it's curative. Why not? So these, these patients, in a way, it's more care is better, but even to the extent that it might lead to overtreatment for cancer, to biopsies, and so on, to repeated visits, um, there was a contingent that really felt this way. So when doing value assessments and helping patients to think of their values, we need to acknowledge, you know, this was some deep probing in cognitive interviews that this is the case for a portion of patients. Um, so what is the uh, provider perspective on lung cancer screening? And this is in the VA, on lung cancer screening and on the, um, uh, the use of shared decision-making. We interviewed groups of providers in the West Haven VA and in the Philadelphia VA and also in our CBOX, which are more rural-based community health care centers. And it's, it's very interesting. So there's certainly among physicians, as you know, a belief in the hierarchy, hierarchy, of, hierarchy of evidence. So physicians believe the randomized trials, um, and that's very important to them. But they also look to national guidelines and local guidelines before investing in putting an infrastructure and system in their institution to reach that guideline. And I'm speaking here, you know, from the VA, so it's a particular perspective. They're very concerned about the imperfect implementation. So if you don't have the infrastructure in place to conduct lung cancer screening, uh, will there be loss to follow-up? Will you have adequate records? Will the patients be notified to come back? And so on. Um, they're concerned about the harms that we mentioned, and that speaks back to our case history about the patient, because physicians are truly concerned that this patient um, is going to have an exacerbation of their post-traumatic stress going through this process. Um, they're also concerned about competing priorities. They would rather focus on smoking cessation and the many other alerts that we attend to. And the relevance of the trials to their population, uh, that's a big concern, which might be older and sicker than the trials. And as far as shared decision-making, the time constraints. And in fact, the literature on shared decision-making in the clinical setting, on decision tools, uh, implementation has been a great challenge, but it's thought that a, a tool needs to be about 8 to 10 minutes max. Um, to really be acceptable, and even then maybe used outside of the, uh, you know, clinic visit first and then brought to the clinic visit. But time constraints are a very um, significant issue. So these are all aspects that we took into account in developing our work. Okay. So what I wanted to do 
Um, now, you know, we've talked about some of the elements of shared decision-making. You know the evidence, you know, as I perceive it, and um, some of the issues with value assessment. So taking this information, we work, are working with web developers um, in Philadelphia to try and design a lung cancer decision tool um, in, for our veterans that would be both, both patient and provider facing and really assess the needs of both. And what you see here in this diagram, it's really just, it's sort of our flow chart of how this tool will work. And I want to just give you a sense of that. The tool would be given um, to the patient. They could use it at home. It's basically designed for a tablet um, to be used on tablet, but can also, as a primary device, but can be used on a, a phone as well, or a desktop or a computer. And I know it's a little bit um, faded here, but since it's in the context of a trial, they'll randomize when they sign on to the tool to a controller intervention. But basically, the patient will go through the tool in a linear format, which is what's shown here from start to end. And I'm going to show you some of the content, and you'll see how we've applied what we've um, talked about. Uh, but the provider has a provider portal page where they can go right to what we feel is a pictograph that shows the main evidence. If the patient brings the tool into the clinician setting, they can just click on that pictograph and go right there or click on a summary page and not have to go through the tool in a linear fashion. And what this would accomplish, though, and what some of the providers told us, is that they want to know when the patient comes to the office that they've had the key education they need about lung cancer screening so that the provider can feel they don't have to go through all of that themselves and confident that they've reached that. So the main point here is sort of the linear um, aspect of the tool and also, you know, that it's relatively short number of frames, uh, which we'll go through, and that you have a patient portal, a physician portal, and a summary page. And I'll tell you a little bit more as we get through that. So I'm sure um, many of you have probably worked on some tools, and this is sort of the design, this is a design concept. It's just in production now. So if anyone has feedback, I'd love to hear it. Uh, but some of the things to note are the VA branding on top, you know, to give some credibility for the population. And as we've discussed, it really was developed with input in an implementation sort of way with input from the population where we're planning to use this tool. You know, we're trying to have sort of a, a clean design look. Um, and so this would be the entry page to the tool. Um, focusing on the decision and framing that there is a decision to be made here. Uh, they have the option, there's some of what they call modals, where they have an option to click for a little bit more information. And here, if they want to learn more, again, we talk about us as developers of the tool, and we talk about the data from this tool coming from the National Lung Screening Trial. Because we're going to be showing them evidence, and we want you know, the physician and the uh, patient, if they want to know where that information came from. Um, this is from the uh, page, um, from the initial page, you can jump to the uh, physician portal, as I mentioned. So physician, there'll be a button right on the front page if the patient shows up with the tablet in the, or on their phone in the office, and the physician can have ready access to what they told us they really want to see from this tool. <coughs> So this is the way that we introduce the background. We have this dialogue um, that, that uh, sort of um, stim simulates a dialogue between a provider and a patient. And we wanted, we really didn't have the resources to have actors or voice. 
Um, so we use these sort of thought bubbles to um, convey a dialogue. You know, hello, this in the white is a doctor. Hello, I want to tell you about a new screening test available. And the patient says, well, tell me more about it. And the doctor's bubble tells, you know, a little bit of introduction about the screening test. And, we were, and then you scroll down, and this dialogue goes um, a little bit further, but not too far. And it was very interesting to bring this to the patients in our pilot testing, who were many of them older. You know, they were at least uh, 55, but many of them were in their 70s. And to see how they captured this, and right away, uh, most of them were very engaged. They said this is just like texting. They were able to scroll down and back and forth. And they really liked this dialogue. And this is, you know, one approach to make it an engaging introduction to using the tool. Um, we experimented with, you know, there are several key bits of information that we feel are important to include in this tool, most of which we've reviewed uh, today, the data. Um, but instead, you know, the dialogue is too long to give all the information in that way. So one approach is to really chunk information in various bits. And so the next portion of the tool, we're still working on some of the language, but we have here different um, pieces of information about uh, false positives, significant <laughs> incidental findings, the process of lung cancer screening, radiation exposure, and so on. Um, Overdiagnosis. Um, there's a few questions that came up in our interviews that people were often confused about, that a false positive test really may, meant a mistake, for example, um, and that, um, let's see here, whether they can stop screening if they have a normal CT scan. So certain misconceptions that came up frequently, we sort of just thought, thought about the most important information and then the patient will go through and click each of these boxes and they get a signal when they've completed the box. And so we do require that they go through these. And there's, you know, maybe one or two sentences in each box. It's just brief, but it's the main information. Um, and this pictograph um, is really the way that we put forth the um, main data from the National Lung Screening Trial. And it shows, it's sort of a traditional type of um, data presentation that's been used from the trial uh, in terms of out of a thousand patients which are represented by each of these columns and dots and it's easier to see you know on a tablet than you're seeing here it really is much clearer and more vibrant and then it highlights you know those um, some of the main outcomes that we've talked about uh, there was a lot of discussion um, in the development about whether it's worth the space to really show the control group here but I felt that, again, with the idea of patients wanting to understand evidence, that this came from a trial and that these outcomes came from a study, um, we decided to include that. And we found that the patients right away really understood this very well, which is somewhat surprising to us. I would say 9 out of 10. And right on the top, you know, we brand the trial with the name of the trial. And so we did include all the information here. But what we felt was most important in terms of the mortality benefit the um, false positives, and um, some of the um, uh, complications and so on. So this actually was one of the most liked um, aspects of the tool from both the providers and the uh, patients. Um, in terms of telling data about overdiagnosis and radiation um, exposure, which we talked about previously, this we present separately because it really wasn't published with the trial, although the data was based in part on analysis from the trial, as we've discussed. 
but we do give information about overdiagnosis, a one definition, and that it occurs in one out of five cases. And radiation exposure, we give the number five out of 10,000, as we reviewed in those estimates, if you have screening for 10 years. And so that might sound like very complicated information, and it is, but we found that for patients that were concerned about radiation, and many patients are concerned about radiation, that they understand this is a small number. You know, so five out of 10,000 is a small number. And I think it allows them to understand that is a risk, and we're open about that risk, but it is a small risk, right? So, so we found that our patients, they liked seeing those numbers, and we tried to make them, you know, as simple as possible. And this shows you, in terms of our value assessment, this particular question Ask them, it describes each of some of these harms or some of these outcomes we were describing, and ask them to identify whether this particular outcome causes them to lean against or lean towards lung cancer screening. And it's a scale of one to five. Uh, we've also been experimenting with other wording. How concerned are you about each of these outcomes? And the point about this is to then try and get an idea of where, which one of these is really impacting the patient's decision, okay? And so these are sort of rating scales that get to values. And we also have a series of scales on value assessment from the interviews, just how people feel about lung cancer screening that's not so based on these attributes. Uh, things such as, you know, cancer screening is always good for me. Finding it early is most important to me. Or I really worry about getting a lot of tests. So some of these general and attitudes that might affect their decision totally separate from this, these specific outcomes we have some questions like that, too. And um, then um, because, again, it's a specific population of veterans, um, the smoking cessation message has to be integrated into any lung cancer screening shared decision-making. And for this population, we also felt a mental health concerns needed to be integrated because the idea that for patients with anxiety, which our veterans have much of, um, they may want to talk to a mental health provider, not only about smoking cessation, but about how this might impact this extra test to worry about and so on. So they have an opportunity to, to say here they want to talk to their provider and be referred for those services. And it just acknowledges this can make it harder in this population. So, so again, it makes it a very um, sort of specific intervention. Finally, you know, they come to the screen about... Um, ask them to sort of integrate this and let us know where they're leaning in this decision, and this is often done in shared decision-making tools, and it's some, you know, sort of ask the patient, you know, given all of this, where are you leaning? If they want to make comments to their doctor, um, and then the summary page, and this is what they can, um, will summarize some of their values, where they're leaning, um, it will pull in if they want to um, see any of their providers, you know, mental health or smoking cessation, talk to them about those in particular. And um, they can save as a PDF. They can email it. Um, we as investigators will be, you know, putting this on um, My Healthy Vet to connect with their providers, or they can bring it to the provider. Um, so uh, that gives you a sense of where we are and sort of how we've tried to pull in the work you know, the evidence, the thought about values, and um, also the, the patient engagement. Um, so we've tested this, you know, just in 13 veterans thus far, and we use a very standard system usability scale, 
And these are the questions in the scale, and this is used a lot in any sort of technology development. And this was developed, you know, with that viewpoint in a way, um, you know, and basically these questions assess how useful and uh, the tool would be, if, was it easy to use, did you need a lot of technical support, um, do you think most people would learn from this? And you can see there's positive and negatively worded questions. And among the 13, it really rated quite well with a mean score of about 80, and 68 is about average in this, in this tool, uh, in this scale, rather. Um, and then in terms of knowledge, uh, we used a, there's been a develop, a Robert Volk's group um, has developed a, a lung cancer screening knowledge scale, and uh, we were able, you know, the improved, no, improved knowledge um, before and immediately after, which is actually very important because were they understanding any of this? You know, and, and it's, it seems like they were, on, on the whole, taking away um, quite a bit of information. Um, so, so in summary, um, you know, we, we feel, you know, we've been developing this tool based on these principles. It demonstrates some increased knowledge and high usability. Uh, we plan to do sort of a hybrid efficacy implementation pilot study of this tool in our VA, and where we're really going with it, and I think this speaks to the VA, but also for tools that are developed in general in this area, you know, we want to, in the VA, integrate this with what's going on nationally. They have an innovation center, they have a connected health program, which allows apps to be stored and accessed on the VA computers. They have a new EMR, you may realize, coming in the VA, which will be a major, um, you know, undertaking. Um, so we'll be trying to work with that. And the VA is currently um, investing quite a bit in lung cancer screening. Uh, you may be aware of that. Uh, you know, we had a pilot, uh, we had programmatic trials a few years ago of lung cancer screening in the VA and then in general at about eight different sites. In general, the VA found that they were finding more nodules and having higher false positive rates, especially in the Midwest, interestingly. And it didn't really take it forward to the next step, but there's a new investment uh, in the VA that's supporting some infrastructure, and we're hoping to integrate work. We are working with that group um, with the hopes of, uh, you know, the hopes of making this work um, helpful and meaningful and accessible. But I think that last integration piece is, is always a challenge and the most important thing. Um, so I just wanted to thank my uh, research team uh, for this work, and it was uh, really conducted mostly at the West Haven VA is being, and the Philadelphia VA, and also we have a Veterans Community Advisory Board who's been helping us in this process. Um, I want to thank you for your time, and I really welcome any, love to hear any questions or suggestions or your experiences with this type of work. Oh, that was a really interesting presentation. I'm curious, the wild card of this seems to me to be the provider, actually. Mm -hmm. So have you demonstrated where someone shows up with the same form and gets, so let's say, 10 different providers, do they get the same conclusion at the end of that discussion? Or, or, or the provider, the providers need training on a tool like this? Right. So those, those are really important points. Uh, the provider, um, we will need to have provider training, certainly. And in our development work, there was a wide range of opinions in providers and very strong 
opinions <laughs> among providers about lung cancer screening. Uh, so we have not done that type of experiment. You're saying if the same form comes to different providers, how would they respond? And will it impact their decision at all? Uh, I think that I think that all providers want their patients to be educated about this. They don't all want to do it themselves, which is understandable. So I think at the very least, I think there'll be some agreement that there'll be, um, it would be better if the patient is knowledgeable. But in terms of the actual decision, we all know that the recommendation of the physician is very strong. And so it, that probably will still have a significant sway. But that in part is part of the shared part of the shared decision making. So, um, but I think the provider acceptance is a huge question, important question. Chris, uh, thank you very much. Um, I, I personally like your, your tool it, it, because it's interactive. You know, here at Dartmouth, they give the option grid, which I, I think is really not very good. But um, <laughs> yeah. the thing is that you, I, I really found interesting was your qualitative mm -hmm. research that you have done and this cognitive disconnect between what risks and benefits. Yes. That's really critical. And I was wondering, I couldn't see it up there. Yeah, I'm sorry. Is I should it, maybe. Is it, is it part of your tool to try to educate patients about the dangers of overdiagnosis and, you know, the dangers, the risks involved with testing and stuff like that? Is that part of your tool? Right. Really right. Yes, those blocks, and I, uh, I apologize that they weren't clearly viewed. So we do. We have to be parsimonious in what we can include because of the depth, but we tested a description of what overdiagnosis is, the diagnosis of cancer that would not have presented, you know, been clinically evident or have not caused you any harm in your lifetime. We definitely give them that definition. And um, so we are very explicit about those definitions, each of those. But what the cognitive interviewing shows is that they understand that, but yet the knowledge is more important to a portion, and I would say maybe 30% of those we interviewed. So not everyone. So it's not a, I mean, overdiagnosis is a difficult concept, and overdiagnosis is really sort of a, um, you know, type of bias, latent bias. I mean, eventually the cancer becomes, usually could become evident in five, 10 years, uh, but it's not in the first year when the statistics are from. And so some patients think about that. They say, well, it's not important now, but it could be in the future, and they're not incorrect. Uh, so often they do understand the concept, but still, even given the risks, that knowledge is a very big driving force of wanting to know and the potential. Yeah, does that answer your question? I just, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I do think it's critical to explain that to them, but I'm not convinced that even if they understand it, you know, some don't. With your tool being interactive, yeah. couldn't that be built into it so that the patient gets there, gets that information before they actually speak to the provider? Yes. Yes. They should, the tool should be used before they see that, I think most often will be used. No, but I mean also yeah. to present those kind of concepts. Yeah. Because that's critical. Yeah. Sure, oh, okay. I'll let you. I have two questions. The first one is, well, what's happened to the lady at the beginning of the show? Oh, <laughs> that's a really good, uh, well, that's, that was a hypothetical. <laughs> because, and the reason is, the reason is that we don't have young lung cancer screening yet at our VA. The second question is, have <laughs> you absolute risk reduction yeah. in your conversation? Because 
the relative, relative risk reduction may be quite good, but when you look at the absolute right. percentages, we're dealing probably with 0.005% yes. percent. No, we do use absolute risk um, always. So we're, you know that um, 18 per thousand deaths per 21 per thousand for the mortality reduction, and we do at one point say both the 20 percent risk reduction together with the absolute risk reduction of mortality because that's so often used that we combine them um, for the radiation risk. But you're right, I did not for the overdiagnosis. It's, oh, we did we use one in five for overdiagnosis and five out of 10,000 over a 10 year period for radiation. So, you know, we do primarily use um, absolute risk, which I think is important. And, and many patients do say that is small, even for the three, the mortality reduction. And there is a difference. Some people that is does discourage them. That and some people say, you know, three lives is three lives. And so. Hi. I think my question is related to a lot of the previous ones. I'm so interested in that 30 percent of mm -hmm. people who do things that that we on the um, primary care of general medicine health service research team generally acknowledge as harm. I think there's that same 30 percent among providers. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that is a complex question. So, um, you know, just by virtue of saying this is a choice, it, to some of that is there, but this is particularly fraught with strong feelings, and we have, you know, at this point in this emerging technology, emerging, you know, sort of paradigm. So I haven't really gone there yet. Do you? Yeah. But it's a very good point. Hi. Hi. Uh, gastroenterologist here interested in, in developing decision aids for patients, particularly with inflammatory bowel diseases. So I think about yeah. this a lot. I have a, a problem, but I wonder if you can help tell me if you've addressed this as well. The problem is the, the data that we have to show patients and the great ways that you're showing it uh, are from clinical trials for the most part. Mm -hmm. and, and we also know clinical trials just don't represent right. reality. It's their ways to get drugs approved through the FDA, their ways to do accounting and epidemiology research, but we know there's a disconnect. And I, I feel the sense of guilt every time I show clinical trial data to patients that represents clinical trials, but not what might actually happen to them. And I, I wonder if you've struggled with this question yourself, and if you have a way to communicate this to patients in a way that they get. We're giving you one example of what might happen to you, but this may not represent exactly somebody like you. Right, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think that the clinical trial data is, is the best data we have, as you know, but that is actually a good message that one could consider. It's just, again, a matter of the, um, I think some of that patients are intuitive about, as I mentioned, from the qualitative work, uh, and that is a major concern of the providers as well. So it might help both the providers and the patients to have that kind of message actually in the tool. It's an interesting thought. Uh, Thank you.
So I'm, I'm an occupational environmental medicine physician and often times involved in doing environmental risk communication. That's interesting for this topic of radiation. And yeah. oftentimes in public hearings or there's an angry mob at one sort or another. And with this, uh, environmental risk, there's oftentimes the risk of cancer, which mm -hmm. is oftentimes small. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes one of the demands of the public is for longitudinal screening, which has a all of the problems that we, we saw above, plus very little benefit. Yeah. And so the, the question is, and I think this is a worthwhile thing to study, this has to do with a personal lifestyle behavior. And we know in general that when kind of the risk comes from the outside and someone wearing a black hat poisoning you in some way, hmm. that people perceive yeah. that risk very differently than when it's a, a risk that they've taken on themselves. And I just wonder if you have any comments about that, any thoughts about that, and whether or not looking at uh, potentially, say, uh, asbestos exposure or radon exposure, which is natural, mm -hmm. you know, that might well change the kind of the, the people's values and the way they yeah. go through this decision-making regarding screenings. Well, it's very interesting because, you know, the smoking cessation, the behavior, I mean, one idea is to really focus more on that, that is under their control, and give more information about, say, high smoke, you know, the actual attributable risk from smoking uh, to um, lung cancer. You know, we don't really emphasize that. Um, the environmental risk, it's very interesting. Uh, these are veterans. They've been exposed to a lot of chemicals. They've been in environments. They're used to that concept. Uh, and some of them feel they're maybe hardened to it. And, you know, that can go both ways in their perception. Uh, but I think that um, the other interesting thing about radiation, which I didn't include this, uh, you know, most of them look at it as sort of a benign type of, you know, it's medical, it's, it's radiation, but it's, you know, in medical context. Some of them had the misinterpretation that that was a benefit. Um, not to the degree of the other aspects, but they thought of it as therapeutic. That was probably more misinformation and understanding, you know, that radiation is a therapeutic um, approach. But it is confusing because it's used in medicine in both a therapeutic way and a diagnostic way. So um, it's not really, you know, it's, it's a positive. Um, they don't have that evil connotation of radiation um, because it's in the medical setting, I think, or that ominous con connotation. But... But uh, so radiation itself is, a, I think, a very emotional. Some people react very strongly to it. Um, so, Rich, I think we have yeah. one more time for one more question. Great. As you mentioned, yeah. um, Dartmouth has quite an interest in shared decision making, and we've been doing this for a while. And yet, I don't believe it's widely endorsed in much of our practice. You've shown data on what looks like early work mm -hmm. at two yeah. VAs. What is your thought about scaling it up? Yeah. You know, how, how do we, how do you bring that then to more encounters and to spread it to more of a system? Right. So that's, you know, been the challenge for, for many years in shared decision making, but I think it has to do with technology and the electronic medical record and really integrating into clinic flow, you know, making it more nimble. I know we talked about that last night a bit, how, you know, how we can integrate um, these type of tools in the pathway, in the regular um, clinical pathway. So I really think it's, that's a major factor. 
both in the clinical setting, but also how patients are using technology outside of the clinical setting. Uh, and if we could reach them in that way on these devices, I think that it has a, a great amount of potential. Uh, but that's often takes a lot of resources, coordination with, you know, IT and the resources of a healthcare system to garner that kind of energy um, in the technology. Uh, but I think more and more patients are using home monitors and technology at home to care for their health. And so I think that offers a good opportunity uh, with these type of tools. But if anyone has, I know we're coming to the end, but I would love to hear more from others. I think that's the biggest question. Well, we have uh, two minutes. Can we have one more question, maybe? <coughs> yeah. Uh, most of the decision aids I've seen have been designed it's more exclusively for pre-visit or in-visit. Mm -hmm. Where is the way to go that combines the same tool that has a pre-visit mode and an in-visit mode that are consistent with each other? So, uh, I was just curious if you're going to examine that compared to, say, uh, the exclusively in-visit model, which I think a lot of places are using for the required shared decision Right. We did design it that way purposefully uh, with the idea of as much flexibility as possible for how it's used and the idea that we wanted to engage a provider, push it towards that communication. So it is, I think it is innovative in that way, and we had not yet, but we, we should, you know, think about perhaps uh, we certainly be collecting data on how it's used. But I'm glad to hear that you think that's a potential uh, innovative and hopefully useful approach. It would be interesting to see how often it's actually physicians, you know, use it in the visit. Yeah, I think, I think we're at time. I, 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 I want to thank Dr. Spur very much. Oh, uh, thank you very much. Thank you to everybody. It's been a great audience. And if there's anybody has any other questions, feel free to come on down.